Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode is brought to you by the ABCs of Body Positive Parenting. Our signature virtual guides provide additional research and resources to help you put body positive parenting into action so that you and your care providers can help your children fully bloom. To claim yours, please visit our website at fullbloomproject.com. Today, we are speaking with Melanie Rogers, founder and executive director of Balance Eating Disorder Treatment Center and one of the most highly sought after registered dietitians in New York City. In addition to being an absolute pleasure to collaborate with professionally, she is also a trending expert in orthorexia, a disorder that is relatively new and often masquerades as healthy eating, but comes with extraordinary risk. Nuance is everything, and today's diet culture can make it difficult to distinguish between healthy habits and the pursuit of the thin ideal disguised as wellness. We are thrilled Melanie is here to help us navigate these complexities. Melanie, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. We're thrilled you're here, and we, we have such respect for you and the field and have loved collaborating with you, so it's a special treat. But for those listening who might not know who you are or what you do, could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to become an expert on orthorexia? Sure. Um, so I'm actually a registered dietitian um, by training and I kind of fell into the field of eating disorders. Honestly, I was working at the Obesity Research Centre here in New York City. Uh, that's uh, Actually, I'm originally from Australia and one of the reasons I came here to New York to study and do my master's and pursue becoming a registered dietitian is because I wanted to be here in New York and I wanted to actually um, work at the Obesity Research Center because that was kind of a hub of where a lot of the early research was coming from. Um, and as a dietitian, you know, being linked with all things related to obesity is incredibly important. So long story short, while I was there, I was exposed to um, working with a population that the clinicians there were calling uh, who were struggling with binge eating disorder. And I had heard the term, uh, but this was long before there was a diagnostic code, which we only really got about three years ago, I think. Um, and it was from working with that population that I just really was intrigued because it was a blend of the medical nutritional training that I had with the psychological and behavioral. And for me, that was just like, wow, and fascinating stuff. And also a very, very... Um, poorly understood illness. And from there, I started then working with clients with bulimia and orthorexia, of course, which is our topic today, and anorexia. Also, full disclosure, I'm a recovered clinician myself. So 
It was never my intention to work in the field, but I realised because of my previous lived experience, I understood a lot of the mindset and the challenges that, you know, my clients were going through. So that led me into the world of eating disorders and working within the eating disorder world, I started to see a lot of what we're calling orthorexia now, which is a a real preoccupation, even obsessionality, if you will, around the nutritional perfection of meals and what we put into our bodies, so much so that it becomes debilitating. So out of really kind of concern for what I was starting to see with my clients, then like, you know, any of us who who don't really know what we're seeing but need to know more about it, started to do more research and then slowly but surely uncovered more about uh, orthorexia and its overlap with OCD and its overlap with anorexia. Well, that's wonderful because you kind of answered this next question that we wanted our listeners to feel like they had a good definition of, which is like, what exactly is orthorexia? I feel that you answered that, but do you want to answer that in any more specific way? Yeah, I would say that the only thing I would add to that is unlike, say, anorexia, there's not necessarily a preoccupation with weight loss like what we see with anorexia. So that's probably one of the most distinguishing features between the two. It's really more about the obsessionality with the the absolute maxed out nutritional value of the food and it's got to be organic and it can't have pesticides, you know, used in growing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's probably the, the main differentiator. And as I mentioned, it overlaps OCD and anorexia, but is still distinctly its own kind of... Um, illness, if you will. You know, and I think that this topic is so important. And as families, the families we work with, and even even in our own families, it can be hard to tell the difference between wanting to be healthy, wanting to eat healthy, and orthorexia, right? Like adopting an orthorexia sick value and viewpoint, which I think you're outlining beautifully for us. And I guess, is there anything you can help us and our listeners understand about how to tell the difference? Because this is not always so obvious, right? Yeah, it's it's not so obvious. And I think when we use these terms, it can, you know, to your point, Zoe, it can get very confusing. And so when I talk about the term orthorexia, like anything, there's a spectrum to it, which means that there's kind of slight aspects of it uh, through to kind of full-blown obsessionality that is disruptive to your life and your relationships and you're basically just not able to function. And I think that for many people in the population, our general population, we as a whole, now that we have so much more really great, important information about how to be the healthiest versions of ourselves and what foods to optimise and make sure that we eat, there's a really uh, great motivation to eat in a healthful way that promotes health, right? We all want to be the best healthy version of ourselves. So there's a, a kernel of it coming from a really good place. And I think that probably many people really get that right as far as doing the best that they can to eat in a healthful way when they can. Love that. But then we also have the pressures of our current culture and we also have the pressures of social media 
And we also have the pressures of a lot of influencers out there in social media who are not necessarily spreading factual information about what is healthy and it can become quite faddish. Um, in fact, I just read a statistic uh, earlier this week that nine out of 10 influencers are spreading incorrect and false information around health. So you want to be a little bit careful about who you're listening to as far as what are their credentials. And it's not good enough to say, well, I eat food, so therefore I'm an expert. You know, I mean, the average registered dietitian has had seven years of college focusing on food. <laughs> so there must be just a little bit more to it than just what we eat. But alas, I digress. But getting back to kind of the healthful balance to when does it tip to obsessional, I think if you put together all of the social media, I think if you put together the pressure on parents now to, you know, make sure they're giving their kids all the best food, et cetera, et cetera, there's a lot of awareness around organic foods, et cetera. So it's a little bit of a, um, a pressure cooker um, where I can see how it'd be easy to get a little bit obsessed about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the the comment that you made about influencers, I mean, nine out of 10 influencers, that statistic is, is kind of mind-blowing. So I just wanted to bring it back to that right now because as, as parents, um, our kids are really drawn to influencers. And when, we, when you say influencers, I'm assuming you mean mostly social media. And there's really, we, we had someone on, previously that talked about kind of helping your your kid uh, be a wise consumer of social media but it's just it's concerning and I think it just kind of rings an alarm bell like nine out of ten influencers are not are not sharing factually accurate information about health and so what does that leave us with as families and I think this speaks to the, the next question we wanted to hear what you had to say about, which is, you know, can we talk about this kind of health wellness culture that's happening on social media, but also in families and how it how we need to be wise about that as, as parents and mindful about that when our when we're talking about health with our kids and who's talking about health with our kids. Totally, totally, Leslie. And I kind of, in my mind, I think of it as kind of two, two, two categories, if you think of when we think about our kids. I think about our little ones who are not necessarily, hopefully, <laughs> following influences just yet. You know, my daughter's five and so she likes her little videos of princesses on YouTube um, but then, um, so really the influence, the impact of influences is what I might as a parent be consuming in my own feeds, you know, and, and what am I observing on Instagram and such. And so the impact of that on me and then deciding, hey, I think I want to raise my daughter to be vegan and not realizing or knowing that there are essential, there are essential nutrients that you can only get from food and some of them only from animal products, that if you take those out of the equation, you're actually um, putting your child's growth and brain growth uh, in jeopardy. So again, making sure that you have the right information there. So there's that group of influences on parents 
And again, like I have the benefit of seven years of college with um, studying nutrition. So hopefully I know a little bit about it so I can, you know, weigh what I um, weigh up the validity of what I'm reading, but also I can vet the uh, background of these people who are, you know, reporting things on social media. So I can do my own vetting and say, this person doesn't have a degree in X, Y, and Z. So I don't know that I'm going to trust this as a source. Whereas the average person out there may not even think to do that. We're not vetting our social media influence as well. So there's that category of the influence on parents. And then there's the other category of when our teens get out there and they're doing their own social media and following, you know, whomever um, and the messages that they're then taking in and, and how could we expect them to be able to know who's an expert and who's not. Um, and I love the fact that you guys did a podcast on, you know, trying to bring our kids up to be a bit more savvy in this area. You know, and I, I guess just before we move on to the next question, that the wellness diet, the wellness culture as it pertains to diet culture and sort of telling the difference between those two things, I uh, it's so confusing because we're not trying, certainly not trying to vilify green juices or whole foods or organic products by any means. Like we want to make space for those too. But I think in particularly for this episode, we really want to shine a light on what can be troubling about getting too consumed by that, the sort of assigning of virtue to quote unquote healthy foods and vilifying, you know, quote unquote junk foods. Like we did, we did an episode on that. But I I, I say this as a parent of also five-year-old, almost five-year-old and three-year-old. And I am elated when they eat a vegetable. (laughs) Like I jump for joy. I get excited in like a bizarre kind of way because we, you know, we, we, they love cucumbers and, and that's about it, you know? And so if I see them go for a piece of lettuce or a carrot, I am so excited because I think about how, you know, that's just, you know, I think of those, those foods as nutritionally beneficial and I want them to have vitamins and nutrients, just like anyone else that's health conscious. And so I'm coming from that perspective, but I also want to ask, when should we be concerned when our young kids or teens say they just want to be healthy or they start eating more vegetables, right? Because I may be elated to see that, but then how do we know when it's crossing over into a zone where now it's becoming a problem, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like yourself, Zoe, I'm elated when my five-year-old eats vegetables, a vegetable as well. She does love her, you know, broccoli trees. That's about it. <laughs> so we have to, this is not your question, but just to put a comment in about this, because I was thinking about how do I approach the messaging with my own daughter while I'm conscious of you know, our messaging to our eating disorder clients is about not labeling foods and all foods fit and such. That is also with the assumption that adults understand that there's a biological need for certain nutrients in our body, whereas little kids don't know that. So therefore, with my daughter, I use phrases like growing food and fun foods and growing food. So, okay, let's make sure that we've got enough you know, protein, you know, chicken, whatever for our muscles. Okay. We're nice and strong and, and, um, and, you know, and then let's have our, our ice cream or whatever. Um, 
and not necessarily in such a, a clear-cut way because I, I don't want her to feel a great difference between the two, but enough that she knows that there are certain foods that she needs to have first and not displace with just ice cream so that she can grow, you know. Um, but getting back to your question about what happens, particularly I think when our kids start to hover around maybe puberty or even pre-puberty where they might decide that, hey, I want to just eat vegetables or start to get more in that direction. And probably how it will present itself is they start to eliminate certain foods. Often we'll see that such as carbs, I'm not eating carbs, I'm not eating, eating bread, I'm not eating pasta, I'm not eating potatoes, that would be a flag to say, hey, what's going on here? Um, in a non-accusatory way, but to ask if there might be something more underlying, because usually saying I want to eat more healthily is code for I want to eat fewer calories and lose weight. So that's usually where people are going to come from. I remember myself going through my teens, you know, through um, puberty and like we all do, we gain weight. And my father made a terrible comment that I guess at the time he thought was funny that, you know, I was developing uh, curves and uh, I was mortified. And after that, I stopped eating potatoes at dinner and then... Um, because that was part of the generation, then he shamed me into not eating potatoes. But I was really concerned about calories and it never even, never even crossed my mind before that, you know. So I would be asking the questions about what else might be going on aside from just wanting to be healthy. Does that make sense, guys? Yeah, and I think it's, it's such a challenging time. We just last, just this past episode that we launched was on puberty and about how this is such a such a risk factor, a, a time of highest risk for onset of eating disorders. And I think that's also a time where we will probably see the onset of orthorexia as well. I haven't looked at the research, but most of my clients do come in with parents saying, we, we didn't know that. We just thought she was trying to eat healthier. And then we realized she took out all this stuff and it started with a lot of times so with my clients it starts with being vegetarian I don't know I don't know what you're seeing um, or if there's any research maybe now it's carbohydrates I'm not sure but I think it's just that moment where you know as as parents of when they're the kids are young we're like excited when they eat vegetables right because they're just less interested in it and then there's this transfer, there's this moment where they start being interested in it and it's kind of like, oh, how, how harmful could this be? Um, and that's when I think we also, as parents, have to start thinking about, well, what is actually happening here? Where are the questions that we need to be asking? So I'm, I think I'm just thinking about prevention and wanting to think about it with you and thinking about how do we nurture our kids with this kind of gentle nutrition but also avoid or identify as quickly as possible some type of orthorexic risk factor. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's, it's such a tough one. So when we talk about prevention, you know, this is a, obviously a huge area for us because we see the consequences of so many 
so many kids, so many people developing eating disorders, and the numbers are only increasing. Um, and what we know, what we know, are some factors that can be very helpful in reducing the risk of of developing these um, very unhealthy, if not dysfunctional, tendencies. Is really a couple of things. One is food neutrality in the home. So certainly. Yeah, making sure you've got your fruit and your veg and your healthy oils and all those good things that we know promote good health physiologically, but also making sure that we're not also just eradicating all sweets and fun foods and, you know, cupcakes and, you know, like a a nice kind of moderate, dare I use the word, (laughs) moderation, that they're all foods fit. You know, we embrace the all foods fit model because the research tells us that if you restrict certain foods, so for example, kids who are not allowed to have cookies and let's say Doritos, my favorite snack food, not allowed to have those in the home. If they go to other kids' birthday parties and they're there, they will actually binge on those foods. They will lose their ability to regulate themselves around hungerfulness and satiety on those foods because they have been completely eliminated in the home. So we know that that approach only sets up for the outcome that you're trying to prevent, which is an overconsumption of foods that are not necessarily enriching the physiology of the body, if you will, i.e. healthy. So therefore, coming back to this point of all foods fit in the home, moderation in the home. But that also means that mum and dad have to look at their own relationship with food. And that needs to be neutral as well so that you can then model it for your kids. So that's step one. And the other piece to that then is what we do know is that if mum or dad or mum and mum or dad and dad um, or whatever the configuration is in the home, if the adults or the caregivers in the home are poking at their own bodies and their own weight and making disparaging negative comments, the kids pick up on that and they then bring out their own microscope on their own bodies. And so that body image piece can be heightened or the risk of developing negative body image can be heightened. I mean, it still certainly can uh, happen because we know social media is such a huge impact on our teenagers above and beyond what the parents are at that point. Uh, But nonetheless, these are some things that we can definitely do to at least give a foundation of uh, moderation, let's say, and uh, a balanced foundation to start from. Kids who are growing up in homes where there's a lot of value placed on certain foods, and as I mentioned, foods are not allowed in the home, and you know, God forbid, going to McDonald's and getting a happy meal is like sacrilegious. Um, unfortunately, you're setting those kids up for the complete opposite effect. And I see those people, those kids growing up and ending up on my sofa talking to me about their binge eating disorder or their bulimic tendencies as adults. So I want to take a minute to hear what you have to say to parents who are really struggling with this balance between, well, I think it's more what I'm hearing from our listeners, some feedback is, I get what you're saying, I hear you, I want all foods to fit in the family, but I'm really afraid that my kid is going to eat too much sugar. And what what about that? I mean, isn't sugar bad? And um, Doesn't it cause cancer? Or hyperactivity? Hyperactivity. Or, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of parents out there that 
I think here what we're saying and want the all foods fit to happen, but are afraid. Yeah. And I'm just curious how you would respond to them here in a kind of a way that can help move from like this sense of like contemplation about this idea to actually taking action around really opening up the all foods fit model into their home. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. So first and foremost, kids are going to preferentially eat high sugar foods um, because our brains are designed to actually seek out um, carbohydrates and, you know, sugar is an instant source of that. So our palates are designed physiologically for us to do that. And that's why, you know, with little kids, you'll notice that they often um, are much more receptive to the introduction of fruit than they are to vegetables, as an example of that, right? Fruit, as we know, has its own nutritious fruit sugar in it, um, and uh, which is essential, you know, well, not essential in the nutritional point of that, but, you know, healthy. So again, this is a part of the, we've overdone it on the sugar piece in our population, in our communities. And so now sugar is evil, which it isn't. It's just overconsumed as a population. But what I advise is it's okay. And I think it's important to have ice cream in the freezer. And I think it's okay and important to have your, you know, your cookies. I mean, how many kids grew up with, you know, cookies and milk for afternoon snack after school? I didn't. That was part of, that wasn't part of my culture. I grew up on, um, scones with jam and tea with my grandmother from my after-school snack. Um, But the point of it, as I look back on my childhood, my mum, you know, baked cakes every week. So we had, you know, cake for morning tea um, and we had dessert every night after dinner. And that was just a natural part of how we grew up. And then, you know, lots of fruit and veg and such. I'm only using that as an example of, of kind of what balance looks like. I didn't realise it was balanced back then, but I'm grateful to them that they provided that moderation. I mean, certain things were kind of, they didn't value like potato chips and, you know, um, soda. They weren't big components of that. So we didn't have that in the home, um, but we had lots of, you know, chocolate milk or whatever. But um, I think the thing around sugar has gotten blown out of proportion. I really do. And I think that if you're eating a lot of processed foods and a lot of those foods that I mentioned, then you're going to inadvertently consume a lot of sugar. And also, unfortunately, this is a huge, much larger topic around our food industry and that there's, you know, extra sugar in a lot of our foods that perhaps need not be there. But if you're eating predominantly a lot of, you know, you know, your balance of your your protein and your grains and your carbs and your fruit and your veg on a daily basis, it doesn't leave a lot of room for a lot of extra processed foods. And those foods can then be, you know, what the kids might have as a snack. But here's the other piece to that. If you truly give your kids the ability to regulate themselves, they have an internal regulation system around hungerfulness and satiety and they will stop eating. So here's an example. I don't know if you've observed your kids around Halloween with all that candy. So if you give the kids range, now I'm talking about kids who haven't had their candy restricted, but if you give your kids the ability to consume what they want out of that candy, they're going to go at it and overdo it perhaps that first night. 
but I've observed my daughter and other kids and they're just not interested after that. They get to the point where it's kind of like, this doesn't taste good anymore. I feel kind of sick. And, uh, and so there's two things I'm talking about there. So one is having it in the home, but it needs to be in the home in a non-deprivation way where it doesn't feel restrictive. And then as a parent, though, you're in control of what you then serve to your kids. And then the second piece is also trusting the hungerfulness satiety piece with kids. And I guess the third piece is, is that if we completely restrict because we don't, we're nervous and we're anxious, that's actually our own stuff. And we're setting the kids up to binge when they do have access. What are your thoughts on that, though, guys? I mean, I think it's very well said. And I was actually just thinking about last night, um, I, I was experimenting with this and we had dinner and and then after dinner, my husband gave our kids uh, like leftover Easter candy. They had, he gave them each a, like a little bowl of M&Ms. And I even noticed myself like, wow, he gave them a hefty portion of M&Ms. It was sort of more than I might've given them, especially because one of them hadn't eaten much of his dinner. But we're trying not to say things like, you can only have this if you finish your dinner. We're trying to kind of not work. We're trying to let them learn about self-regulation. And so I was staring at these M&M bowls and I was like, I said to myself, I wonder what's going to happen. Are they going to eat the whole bowl each? I was curious. And so I sort of just hung back and watched and neither of them could finish the bowl because I think it's like they just started. One of them said, can I save these for tomorrow? And then the other one went and threw the rest. He threw them out, the rest of them out. And they love sugar, you know, without question. But I thought it was an interesting observation. And I noticed that I had to hold, I mean, I'm getting better at it myself because of all the work we're doing here, but it was interesting. I thought, yeah, at a certain point, M&Ms just don't taste as good. Um, And that was definitely coming from internal cues. And so I'm 100% on board with what you're saying. And then I guess before we we wrap up and go to our last question, I want to just bring up the, you know, we're talking a lot about sugar and processed foods. And then I think there's this other related dimension, which is like humanely, you know, well-sourced foods, like the kind of local vor movement and the sort of Michael Pollan thoughts about food and how I think that I've had a lot of clients that come in and are, are almost politically aligned or morally aligned with like not, not even ethics around food, but making sure that they're having no GMOs. And it's almost like a, a hypervigilance around no processed foods, like really wanting to make sure that their home is a place of very, yeah, I guess kind of like clean food. And and I guess I, I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to sort of what around that you think is safe and where that starts to get complicated in terms of the messaging you might be sending your kids just because I I don't know that I'm summarizing it well but I feel like that's very big in our culture right now and there's a lot of documentaries and a lot of sort of like scare tactics I think out there encouraging people to like know what's in your food know what's in your food and I I want to know what's in my food too but I, I, I I'm just aware that there's some nuance there we need to pay attention to what do you think Malini? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And as you as you were saying that, I was thinking about, isn't it sad that we're at a place where we have to ask the question, like, what's in our food? And the reason we're at that place is because we had trust in the food industry and the companies behind our food production, growth, manufacturing and delivery. 
And then we learned otherwise that really took away the consumer's trust in the industry and in the government that regulates it. And it's such, it's such a really sad thing. It's such a basic thing, our food, you know. Thank goodness as a result of the increased awareness with documentaries and whistleblowers and social media also taking this messaging and getting it out there, we know more and we've put enough pressure um, on, the, on the food industry um, as a whole that they're stepping up and they're reducing pesticide use and all of these sort of things and finding alternative, maybe slightly more expensive ways of producing our food, but it's better for us. So those are good things. So I think that hopefully as we continue over the next 10 years, um, we won't have to be as vigilant because it will just be the norm in the way that foods are produced. I don't know, but that would be my hope. So that's number one. So number two, so, so my point being there that I think that, you know, once we learned about some of the ways that our food is produced and animals are treated, yada, yada, it's kind of horrifying. So I think there was actually, there needed to be some vigilance but again, it's this whole thing that our anxiety then takes over and we become almost paranoid and obsessional. So that, that's always where it's, it's, it's to check yourself, like how obsessional am I becoming about this? Is it okay that these carrots are not organic, but, you know, the other things are? Or is it okay that I know where this was sourced from, but the other things I don't know, but that's the meal today? Um, so, so being a little bit flexible is important. How then your second point is, what is the messaging for our kids? I'm hoping that we won't really need to educate them as much around this because the industry as a whole will have cleaned itself up, pardon the pun. But um, I think it is important to go back to basics and remind kids that, you know, our carrots are grown in the ground and they come from farms and they're not grown in plastic bags in the supermarket. So I think reminding our kids of where our food comes from and its source is helpful for them to have an appreciation for kind of the idea of freshness is great because it's got the highest nutritional value and it also tastes the best, you know. Um, I wonder if though that's the kind of messaging that is the most helpful around this as opposed to be careful of this, be careful of that because it, it, it comes from a place of fear and anxiety. Yeah, and I think what I notice kind of in, in my office is is what gets lost is the ability to eat socially and to eat out at restaurants or to, in particular, when I think about kids launching and where a lot of kids um, that I see get stuck developmentally is that they are not able to go to college because I know this is an extreme example, but because they cannot eat at the cafeteria because none of it is good enough. And that's where I worry a lot about our absolutely I mean that's just that's that's where obsessionality gets to the point where it's dysfunctional. You know, I mean how helpful is that for your life? And when we talk about overall health, I think we're missing the forest for the tree or the other way around, whatever the expression is, because it's like, okay, well, well, supposedly my body is pristine because I put no chemicals into it, but my goodness, you might be majorly depressed and certainly you, you might be emotionally stunted because there are life milestones that you can't accomplish because you, you can't go outside of your bubble of clean food. And here's the other thing I'd like to say is that 
You know, yes, these chemicals and the way we've manufactured our food and such, we're finding out a lot more about it. But we have to look at things in moderation too. And I'm not saying any of that is good and at all. But, you know, we're not seeing... We're not seeing people's lifespans decrease. So, for example, the current baby boomers, we're not seeing them kind of drop off the perch at 60 because of all the chemicals they've consumed through the food chain. And they have certainly been exposed to, you know, the worst of it probably. In fact, what we're seeing is that people are getting older and older and living into their 80s and their 90s because there's a lot of factors that go into health. It's, it's Food is really super important, but so are a lot of other things. So I, I think it's really about balancing it out and, you know, and hopefully our kids honestly get a better a better take on it because, you know, organic is just going to be the natural way to go. Or a quick example, when I grew up, I grew up in, in the country and um, on our block of land where the house was, we had a, a vegetable patch, quite a large patch. And so for dinner, before dinner, my mum would say, Melanie, can you go down to the vegetable garden and pull out some carrots and pick some beans for dinner? And I used to hate it. I used to fume. And I was so mortified, especially when friends came over, that I had to go down to the vegetable garden to pick this stuff. I was like, why can't we be normal like other people and just buy our carrots in plastic bags out of the supermarket, you know? And now I look back and think, my God, it doesn't come more organic than that. But I didn't realise that at the time it was really just, I think, probably cost-saving and um, we lived in the country, so that's what people did, you know. But anyway, that's a, a side story there to illustrate, you know, the, the humour in it. <laughs> no, and I, I think it's it's a beautiful illustration and I, I love the light you're shining on the anxiety or the extremism or the paranoia or the debilitation, right? Like those are the problems. It's The problem isn't enjoying a, a, a carrot that you know where it comes from or teaching your child that carrot's grow in the earth. I mean, I, I wish that, you know, we're, we're urban dwellers. I wish we had a garden that I could show my kids that. I mean, I think that's beautiful. And yet there you were in the, in this like bucolic setting, wishing you could just go to stop and shop. So <laughs> I think it's funny and, and poignant and really critical that we are not here saying that there's anything wrong with wanting to feed your family in a certain way. But there is something really problematic about getting extreme about anything, actually, especially when the extremeness infiltrates life. And I thought what you were saying about, you know, what good is physical health or nutritional value if your psychosocial functioning is utterly impaired and you can't even meet developmental milestones? So I thought that you spoke beautifully to that. So, Leslie, do you want to conclude with our final question from Melanie today? Yeah, let's do it. So the million dollar question, if each parent listening to this podcast took away and did one thing on the regular to contribute to body positive parenting, um, what's the one thing they should do in your opinion? In my opinion, the million dollar question is, I think that parents need to neutralize their own relationship with food and get over their own fear of food, trust their own bodies and themselves around food, and then watch their children who have um, a very sophisticated internal regulatory system regarding hunger, fullness and satiety, and get out of their way as far as how they then um, approach food. That would be the, the big thing, which therefore also encompasses watching your own talk 
around food around your kids. I, I love your answer. And I, if there's another parent listening that loves your answer, what could they do today? Like, could you give an example of like a super concrete thing that would maybe be a little small step, but captures the spirit of that, that beautiful advice you're giving? Offer dessert after dinner. Normalize dessert as an offering after dinner. Yeah, hashtag offer dessert. Hashtag offer dessert. <laughs> I love it. I, I, I think I think that's a, a perfect note to end on. And just thank you so much for this wonderful conversation and for all that you're doing in the professional world. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Oh, I'm sitting with a lot of compassion for parents everywhere, for people everywhere, because navigating this issue in diet culture, in wellness culture, it's tough. So I don't know <laughs> if I how are you feeling? I'm feeling really protective, I guess. The thinking is how do we be protective of child and a teenager and a young adult's intuitive eating and bodies as they are and wanting to keep helping them stay in line with that. Yeah. I think in particular those prepubescent years, I really appreciate that she brought that up because I feel like there's so much intersection between what Melanie's talking about today about orthorexia, orthorexic tendencies, and you know, body changes and almost like food preference changes that might come up around puberty in the, in the sort of adolescent years. And I think too, like weight stigma and how changing bodies, as we talked about with Dr. G on the puberty episode, changing bodies can be tough for kids and can be tough for their parents and even their care providers and how this is just such a risky time of as bodies change and maybe thicken, right, like through puberty, if then your kid is gravitating towards, let's say, quote, unquote, healthier eating is actually maybe restricting food in a way that has a lot of anxiety or, you know, in like a fraught way, even though it maybe looks like, oh, they're just eating more vegetables. Like you and I were laughing like, we're thrilled when our kids eat vegetables, but I, I could just see that then if that has this impact on a body that was thickening or was, you know, chunking up, then slimming, I see how everybody could positively reinforce that. And well-meaning parents, people listening, well-meaning healthcare providers probably, right? Yeah, I mean, and I think that I think the bottom line takeaway is while eating a variety of foods is wonderful. And we don't want to pretend that we're not happy for anybody to eat fruits and vegetables mm -hmm. and proteins and carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. That we do want all parents to know of this risk right. um, and to be curious with your kids and also with yourself. Yeah. One of the points that I loved that Malini made was we are living longer. Mm. And so much of this orthorexic thinking kind of comes from being 
as healthy as possible. Right, right. You're going to die if you don't, you know, eat clean. Right. And to what end? Right. And for what purpose? And there's just so much fear in this idea of health and weight Mm -hmm. that I want the message to be, let's try to relax Mm -hmm. as parents. Let's try to relax around making sure our kids are healthy and let's help our kids relax around making sure they're healthy mm-hmm. and around their weight yeah, too, for you sure. know, in the, in the relationship between eating and weight. Um, and I'm left with that, I think, today. Yeah. What are you left with? I'm left with like just a reminder that virtue really has no place in food <laughs> and I'm just thinking even about how I'm so excited when I see my children eat vegetables. It's like, yeah, I mean, I totally get why I feel that way and why we feel that way. And at the same time, I want to, I want to notice that, you know, and, and just sort of check the message that's sending, like that this is something so wonderful that you're eating a vegetable. And yet I'm not excited when you're eating an M&M, you know, it's like, I'm going to kind of notice that. But I also really want everyone to take that message Melanie was sharing about getting curious about your kids' choices, you know, rather than just assuming that something positive is happening when there's more healthy eating happening. Let's not assume anything. And similarly, let's not assume that it's orthorexia just because your kid is gravitating towards more plant-based foods. I mean, that's nothing inherently wrong with that either. But kind of keeping an eye on the psychosocial functioning of our children is... I mean, it's healthy. That's health, right? Yeah. All right, let's leave it at that. All right, that's our show. So, as always, we're interested in your take on today's episode and what new parenting practice our guest inspired in you. So do get in touch with us on Instagram at Full Bloom Project. And if you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a comment or rating on iTunes so more people can learn about the Full Bloom Podcast. Tune back in next time for more body-positive parenting wisdom.